This episode is brought to you by Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington can affect your portfolio every day. Washington Wise from Charles Schwab is an original podcast that unpacks the stories making news there. Listen at schwab.com slash Washington Wise. Coming up on Money Beat, one of the most notorious financial scandals of the last decade, the LIBOR scandal, it's also one of the hardest to explain. That is what our colleague David Enrich does in his new book, The Spider Network. David stops by the studio to tell us how he did it. This is Money Beat from The Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. Hello. Welcome to Money Beat. I am Paul Vigna. I'm Stephen Grosser. And today we have in the studio with us our colleague, David Enrich, who is author of a new book that's out called The Spider Network about what is really one of the most notorious financial scandals of the last decade. And that is really saying quite a lot, seeing what the last decade has brought us. Uh, the real question I want to get to before we get into anything is how you came across this story. Because there's a great sort of mention, I think it's in the prologue, of a text you got from the lead sort of character at 8, 8, 8 p.m. on a Saturday night. Yeah, so I was in the Wall Street Journal's London Bureau at the time covering uh, – all manner of financial shenanigans. And the big financial shenanigan at the time was the LIBOR scandal. And this is early in 2013. A guy named Tom Hayes had just been charged in both the UK and the US with being basically the mastermind of this whole scandal. Should we, should we just briefly tell people what LIBOR is in case they don't? Yeah, absolutely. So LIBOR is the London Interbank Offered Rate. It's often referred to as the world's most important number because it is the basis for interest rates on trillions and trillions of dollars of financial contracts, loans, mortgages, right. everything, all over the world. And it turned out that banks had been trying to manipulate this to enhance their own profits. And the guy – this is a huge industry-wide scheme going on for decades. But the guy who is now being framed at the center of it is a guy named Tom Hayes, who very little was known about at the time. And so my editor uh, in the London Bureau at the time told me that I needed to write a profile of Tom Hayes. And I said no because <laughs> I – it just seemed like a, a fruitless task because there is no way he was going to talk to me. There is no way anyone would talk to me. He'd just been criminally charged. So I said no. My boss said yes. I said no through a small tantrum. And But my boss is my boss, and so I agreed to write the story. And so I did what journalists do in this situation when no one will talk and just started trying to track down former colleagues, business school classmates, family members, childhood friends. One of his former business school classmates, he'd gone to business school in London, and uh, she actually started to talk to me and kind of painted this picture of a mildly autistic, really socially awkward guy, not at all what you'd think would be the banker villain out of central casting. And so after talking to her, I persuaded her to pass on my phone number to Tom Hayes, who she remained in touch with. And she agreed to do that with the caveat that, of course, he's not going to talk to me. So I, I gave her my phone number to pass on to him. And that night, I was sitting at home on my sofa with my wife in London, and my phone buzzed with a text message from a number I didn't recognize. And it said something to the effect of, this goes much, much higher than me. Not even the Justice Department knows the full story. And it was Tom Hayes. And he, wow. yeah, he agreed to meet me the next day. He said he would, uh, he told me to come to Victoria Station, which is one of the busiest stations in London, and meet him outside of a Burger King. And he'd be wearing a brown leather jacket. And, I, you know, I'm thinking... Like, I just stumbled onto the set of All the President's Men or yeah, something. Yeah. Right, right. So it's like crazy cloak and dagger from the start. Yeah, it's, I mean, ridiculously. I mean, I was obviously couldn't sleep that night. I was so excited. And, of course, unfortunately, he can't, his, the first thing that morning, 
uh, as I'm getting ready to go out on my adventure, he texts me and says, I can't do it. My wife won't let me. She found my text messages. And uh, so that that was the be- kind of the inauspicious start to what became this years-long relationship so he with He was him. doing it initially – uh, completely on his own. That's what you like. Yeah, no, he was very much freelancing in this effort. Yeah. He was not, uh, and his wife, so ultimately he then did start opening up to me gradually and through, originally through text messages, uh, ultimately through, you know, a lot of in-person meetings. And he, there was a situation, it was just totally surreal because he would go to meet with his lawyers and I would have just – I just qu- – I quoted that text message, the first text message I got saying this goes much, much higher than me on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. And so he goes to meet with his lawyers and they just rip him to shreds you know, because he – it's not smart if you're a criminal right. defendant to be talking to a journalist. Right. I hate to say that as a journalist, but it's, it's not smart. Uh, or at least his lawyers don't – your lawyers aren't going to think it's smart. So he – his lawyers scold him and he gets out of the meeting and calls me and is like, let's meet. And uh, – so this went on. This kind of dynamic went on for years. I mean, his wife didn't know. His lawyers didn't know. And that eventually changed. I got. I convinced him to let me meet his wife, who uh, is a, a lawyer herself. And uh, so I started – I developed this really close relationship with both Hayes and his wife and some of their other family members over a period of probably three years. And it was fascinating because this is a time when not only was were kind of the – uh, contours of this huge scandal coming to focus. But it was a time when Hayes and his family personally were under just unspeakable, unthinkable amounts of pressure and stress. I mean, this is a guy who was being framed as the modern face of financial crime, essentially. And, and he unraveled. He he was on, he sank into this deep suicidal depression. He, I mean, he was kind of had some mental health issues to begin with. But it was, it was, easily the most fascinating thing I've ever witnessed as a journalist. Can we just sort of take a uh, step back and talk about the actual scandal? What were they doing to fix LIBOR? So LIBOR is the basis for interest rates on trillions of dollars of stuff all over the world. Among those trillions of dollars of things that it's the basis for are derivatives, interest rate swaps and the like, which are basically in normal times, companies use that to insure themselves against volatility and interest rates. And it's a pretty simple type of derivative, but it became this essentially a playground, a casino for Wall Street banks that saw this as a really efficient way to speculate on future interest rate volatility. And that matters because LIBOR is set by the banks. So every day around lunchtime in London, a group of about 15 banks estimate, they basically pull out of thin air, (laughs) a number for theoretically how much it would cost them to borrow money from other banks. And it, that becomes LIBOR. The, it gets averaged out. The highs and lows get tossed out. But that is LIBOR. And so the banks realized that they, on the one hand, are the ones setting LIBOR. And on the other hand, are the ones that have stand to lose or gain enormous amounts of money based on very small movements in LIBOR. And so, you know, the outcome of a, a setup like that is not that surprising, really. It Banks realized that they could, with no one noticing, because no one was supervising this rate. No one was regulating it. They realized that they could nudge it up or down by small amounts. No one would notice. But it would translate on a daily basis into profits easily well into the millions of dollars for an individual trader. Uh, and so that's what they did. Hayes arrived in on the banking scene at a time where this was widespread industry practice. Uh, everyone – not everyone. A lot of people were doing it. Almost everyone knew what was going on. And Hayes was trained to – you know, as a trader, to look for tiny inefficiencies in the market, tiny weaknesses, tiny loopholes. 
find an edge somehow. And, you know, an edge can be uh, having better information than someone, having a better, faster trading system than someone. It can be having stupider clients. Or it can be finding a way to just tweak things a little bit. And so that's what he did. He took this manipulation that had been going on for a long time to a new, higher, more creative, more ambitious level. And he did it all in writing or over recorded phone lines. And he was very effective at it. He, I mean, he, he managed to move LIBOR, not by huge amounts, but by small amounts. But it, this is a guy who was at the upper echelon of the Tokyo trading scene at the time. Mm-hmm. So was raking in $100, $150 million a year for his employer. And it, he, he's estimated that about 5% of that was because of LIBOR manipulation. And it's probably more. Wow. And uh, this is the, okay, go ahead. Yeah, let's take a break. This okay. is a point, point to Dave Brook. A break, not a brook, a break. We will come back more in just a moment with David Enrich, author of The Spider Network. So how do we get AI right? Well, we need the right volume of data, the software to train it, and massive compute power, or... Another one bites the dust. Are you ready? Hey, are you ready for this? Are you hanging on the edge of your seat? But with HPE GreenLake, we get access to supercomputing to power AI at the scale we need, helping generate better insights. All right. Nice teamwork, guys. Search HPE GreenLake. Have a device with Amazon Alexa? Ask her to enable the Wall Street Journal skill and get on-demand access to all of our podcasts, as well as the latest news and market updates. The Wall Street Journal. Listen ambitiously. This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. Welcome back to Money Beat. Paul and Stephen here in the studio talking to David Enrich, who is author of the new book, The Spider Network. And, uh, you know, Sarah Krause told me that I should compliment you by saying that this is a great novel. You know, it's funny. I've gotten... uh, (laughs) I hope she realizes it's not a novel. Uh, she was kidding. I, she I, was kidding. You know, I've done it. One of the fascinating – I've never written a book before. And one of the fascinating things for me is the publicity that surrounds this. And I think two days after it was published, I did in one day 22 radio interviews. And, okay. you know, these were mostly with radio hosts who I'm obviously had never cracked open the book, which is fine. I'm sure that's normal. But a couple of them, you know, we'd get through halfway or two-thirds of the way through a 10- or 15-minute interview. And they would just in passing make reference to the fact that – this was a work of fiction, that it was a novel. And at first I thought, wow, what a great compliment. You know, it's a great compliment to have written a nonfiction book and for it to be – to say that it reads like fiction. I ultimately realized, unfortunately, that that was just a sign of them not having actually read the book. Uh, but anyway, yes, yeah. some, it, it is – it's meant to read like fiction. Right. Well, yeah, because the, the style of it is, you know, it's sort of a you are there and you're telling the tale – so it it does kind of it, – it's actually – it makes it a more accessible way for a person to come into it and read it. It shows the depth of the reporting. Well, it definitely shows yeah. the depth of the reporting, that you can pull that off. I mean, you spend a lot of time yeah. with Tom Hayes his and his family, his wife and stuff like that talking. It, it comes through very clearly in the book. Yeah, the, the other fascinating thing – and that to me was just as someone who's covered finance and banking yeah. for many years, that was really eye-opening. I mean I had always viewed – these scandals and these crises and just these institutional problems as institutional problems, not yeah. human problems. And it, it made me – it totally changed the way I thought about – you know, we always – we hear so much lip service paid to the idea of bank culture. And when you start thinking about that in human terms and about how 
information and kind of customs travel from one human being, from one individual to another, it really changes the way. It, maybe I just th been thinking about it in a kind of naive, superficial way, but I now think about this. As, it's much easier for me to understand how easy it is for bad practices to spread and how hard it is for banks to fix these cultures because it's just so deeply ingrained in their DNA to push the envelope and to make money at all costs, literally at all costs. That That's not, a, that's not an easy dynamic to overcome. You, I mean, you you talk about Tom Hayes and you sort of, I think you said he was either unwilling or just naive to the wrongdoing he was, he was you know, doing. Yeah, and I think, to me, the clearest manifestation of that is that he, everything he was doing, and he was doing a lot of stuff and it was wrong and it was bad and he should not have done it and he deserves to get punished for it, in my opinion. But and a he did, right? And he did, yes. yeah. He is now in serving a very long prison sentence in a maximum security prison outside of London. Um, but, you know, everything he did, the reason it was so easy for authorities to make a case against him is because everything he did, he did in writing. And this is a guy who, he's mildly autistic. He's an expert. He's an absolute genius, really, when it comes to dealing with numbers. He, he's the kind of guy who can do really complex equations in his head with no problem, without breaking a sweat. He's great at spotting patterns, things like that. But you put him in a social situation or put him in a situation where he needs to kind of interpret a fuzzy line between right and wrong, he is an absolute wreck. And to me, this is I – mean, he once said to me that he is either the stupidest financial criminal of all time or he just really didn't realize that what he was doing was so wrong. And I think, you know, it, he was a pretty stupid financial criminal for sure. But I, he also didn't realize the full extent of what he was doing was well, wrong. Was part of it – and this becomes interesting too because in addition to all the time you spent talking to Hayes and his family and his friends, you, you did get access to a lot of the court documents against yeah. him. And I mean, you know, you talk about whether or not he knew what he's doing was right or wrong. This was such a commonplace practice. Yeah. As evidenced by just the mountains of data you went Yeah, through. and it actually wasn't just documents. courtroom documents. It's stuff – one of the – there are two main sources for this book. One was the access I had to Hayes and his family and his friends and stuff like that. The other is that I was, was given uh, essentially a hard drive that was everything the prosecutors had amassed in their investigations of banks all over the world. So most of this – a lot of stuff did come out in court, but the vast majority of it didn't. And so – this is everything from chat transcripts and email messages to phone recordings to personnel records, trading records. So it's everything. You like see the, the when someone takes a sick day, you see the excuse for it. So it allowed me to write this in a way you really get inside the heads of these traders and brokers. Uh, and you begin to understand it, I think, as uh, this is all a symptom of a broader problem, which is that the industry for a really long time was operating with minimal supervision and was their their entire MO was to make as much money as quickly as possible, forget about the consequences. And that's that's a recipe for disaster. No, I mean, you see that constant same recipe, I think, again and again, not just across Wall Street, but across the banking. I mean, there's a similarity to the same thing that Wells was doing and putting pressure on, you know, their salespeople yep, to sure. open up. You know, credit card accounts and stuff like that, fictitious. Now, this is the same. Accounts. This is the same culture that it's the same culture that leads to all these different problems, and it manifests itself different ways. But it all boils down to the same thing, which is enormous pressure to enhance your bottom line and very little regard for how your actions affect anyone other than yourself or your small unit. Uh, to me, the, one of the other really fascinating things about this is that 
what this says about the way the government has handled the aftermath of the financial crisis because there was an enormous amount of public pressure on politicians and prosecutors to find some individuals to hold to account for the banking industry's sins and the damage that the industry caused during the crisis. And instead of going after people at the tops of these organizations who did so much to set the culture and set the, the practices of these institutions, prosecutors really took a shortcut, which was they were going to go after the low-hanging fruit, guys like Tom Hayes, that undoubtedly did things wrong and deserved to be punished, but they were so low-level in the grand scheme of things. These are not people – these are people who came in and were reflecting the cultures that already existed. These are not the people who set the cultures, mm-hmm. and they're not the people who, by punishing you, actually really deter that many people from doing things wrong in the future. So to me, it was a huge missed opportunity. Again, this isn't to say Tom Hayes should not be in jail. Right. It, it's to say that it's crazy that he's basically alone. Yeah, talk about his, the role his bosses played in this. I mean, they, at basically all stages of his con- the activity for which he was criminally convicted, his bosses knew about what he was doing. In some cases, almost all cases, they condoned it. In some cases, they encouraged it. In some cases, they even participated. And his bosses have not been criminally charged. Uh, most of them are out of the industry, but not all of them. And you mm-hmm. still see people, some of these guys who were in, at one point or another named as co-conspirators, or, you know, I've seen the emails where they're involved in this, or yeah. at least know about it, and they remain in pretty senior positions in the banking industry. And that, to me, is just crazy. No, I mean, I, the text messages, I remember when those used to come out or the, on the Bloomberg messaging yeah. system, were pretty amazing. Yeah, there was nothing, there was nothing subtle about what yeah. these guys were doing, and it was, there was nothing – the institutions knew about it. And, and frankly, the government knew about it, or central banks at least knew about it. And there was not – there were a million red flags that were raised – to basically anyone who wanted to pay attention. I mean, the Wall Street Journal had this on the front page back in April of 2008 that there was something yeah. very fishy going on with LIBOR. And, I mean, I had nothing personally to do with that. It was my predecessors, uh, Carrick Mullenkamp yep. and Mark Whitehouse. But, the, the, you know, when something's on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, it is no longer a secret. And yet, that was April 2008. The manipulation, not just of Tom Hayes, but of others, continued for more than two years after that. And that's, you know, give me a break. That it, It's impossible for prosecutors or politicians or regulators or central bankers to argue at that point that they didn't know what was going on. How Has it been changed now? LIBOR, LIBOR has been changed, and it's in the process of changing more still. And I think it's very unlikely, given all of the media and political and regulatory scrutiny of it, that this is going to be a big problem going forward. But there still are enormous weaknesses, cultural and otherwise, that I think make it almost inevitable that there are going to be future manipulation scams uh, and scandals in the future. The New York Times calls it an intriguing tale of complicity. And they said uh, David Enrich uh, manages to make LIBOR interesting and demonstrate the continuing relevance of a financial scandal that enveloped many of the world's largest banks. And and that is not an easy thing to do because LIBOR is a, a pretty esoteric concept for a lot of people. So... You know, how, how does it feel to kind of take something like that and make it accessible for people? I well, it feels great to get praised like that. Uh, <laughs> uh, it one of my goals with writing this book. I mean, I've covered banks for a long time, and one of the things I've noticed over time is that the banking industry, the finance industry in general, uh, goes to great lengths to obscure what they're doing and make it see, kind of like covered in fog. 
and make it seem like it's so complicated and mm-hmm. so mysterious and like you can't possibly understand this if you don't have a finance degree or if you're if you've never worked in a bank and that's nonsense there's there is a lot of complexity and there's a lot of jargon and can be very intimidating for lay people uh, it was very intimidating for me when I started covering yeah. this beat. And it, I think it is for a lot of other journalists. And certainly, I mean, I road tested this book on my parents to make sure that it made sense to people without a finance background. And that's one of my goals here is to just demystify some of this finance stuff and make it clear that intelligent people who have you know enough brain cells to read a book, they can understand this, at least when it's boiled down to its essence. I mean, I think the other thing that makes this book, and this is all, you know, all really great reads about financial history or anything, you know, scandal – come down to the characters and you 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 were able to not only not only were there great characters in this book but you're able to actually make them come alive and that's you know it makes it a much easier way to digest the book when you have real humans you know acting yeah well thank you that's definitely tom hayes is the gift that keeps on giving to me as a journalist because he he's just such a fascinating character and he's not at all out of central casting he's the guy is much happier after a hard day's work, going home and you know eating a bucket of fried chicken, having a glass of orange juice, and watching Seinfeld reruns, than he is partying at a yeah. swanky club or going to a Michelin starred restaurant. And that, just the unconventionality of this character and just how he surprises you at every turn, made it. And he's hilarious because he does these idiotic things in social situations over and over again, and which adds some levity, I think, to what could otherwise be a dry topic. Uh, David Enrich is the author. The Spider Network is the book. And uh, we'd be praising it even if you weren't our colleague. So <laughs> I just don't want people to think that, you know, we're completely biased just because we work here with David. I mean, it really is a well done book. So congratulations. Well, thank on you, it. sir. And just want to remind you hey, if you want to uh, follow us, if you want to subscribe, we're on iTunes, we're on Spotify, Stitcher, the uh, Google Play Music app, Amazon Echo. You can find us everywhere. If you want to write us, we are always interested in hearing from you. You can write us. We are podcasts at DowJones.com. Everyone, thank you for listening, and we'll catch up with you soon. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com.